0: Welcome to the Breaking the Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. According to the World Health Organization, about 16 million women aged 15 to 19 years old give birth each year. With that in mind, I'm sure that many of you would agree that these young mothers should have access to online courses, flexible scheduling, and other services, given the fact that only 40% of teen parents finish high school and fewer than 2% finish college. On today's Breaking Stars episode, we speak with Natasha Viana, who shares how she became a community manager at a tech startup called Honor after organizing a viral campaign called No Teen Shame. She also shares how she leveraged hashtags, social media, and her work in social justice to not only become a leader on her team, but to also continue leveraging tech to bring people together in her community today. If you want to learn more about teen parents that broke into tech, you should listen to episode 23 about Rita Henderson. Also, if you're inspired by these stories and want to take the next step to break into tech, join us in the Breaking Startups group on Facebook and stay tuned for our five-step challenge that comes out next week. Let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, so we're sitting here with a very special guest at Hack Reactor. And uh, it's 8.30 p.m. on a Monday. And we're about to jump in on this very interesting conversation on how to break into tech. And Ruben, can you please introduce our guest? Yeah, we're here with someone really dope.
0: Uh, she's actually one of my coworkers. Her name's Natasha Viana, and she leads community at Honor. Uh, she's also the co-founder of No Team Shame as an activist for reproductive justice. It also talks about how being a teen mom taught her how to break into tech. So, Natasha, we're really grateful to have you here. So, can you you know take us back to your childhood, kind of like how you grew up, how No Team Shame came about, and tell us a little bit more about your story.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Somerville, which is a little town right outside of Boston. It is known as the most densely populated city in all of New England. So it's hyper crowded, mostly middle-class families, lots of immigrant families, very diverse community. I grew up just five minutes from Harvard Square. And so my house actually was surrounded by either families or graduate students at Harvard. And I was actually the kid who spent my weekends with my brothers playing in the Havid (laughs) Yad. And I don't talk like that normally. (laughs) But um, yeah, so I grew up really close to Harvard and really close to MIT and was surrounded by a lot of Amazing students. I was actually in the neighborhood when Facebook was being created and didn't even know it. Wow. Facebook was created when I was probably like in my bed sleeping five minutes away from me (laughs) and I had no idea. Yeah. And I, you know, the tech boom during that time also really impacted how my neighborhood was changing. We saw a lot of gentrification. We saw families who were being pushed out so that, you know, they could move in a ton of grad students and jack up the rent. So my community was changing, but I had a pretty stable mom. I think she was like the core of my life. I think she's my hero now. So my mom is an amazing woman. She is an immigrant woman who came to the U.S. in the early 80s from Brazil. And she came with just my older brother, who was six at the time. And came to Boston from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which is like the most amazing, warm, hot place. And she went to the like coldest, strangest <laughs> place. And a lot of people make assumptions that, you know, when people come to the U.S., that the reason that they're coming to the U.S. is because they're looking for a better life or they, um, you know, need better income. But the reality is my mom had no choice. Um, my older brother was born with a hole in his heart. And needed open heart surgery, and so they were doing the best that they could to keep him alive in Brazil. But he needed open heart surgery, and the only place that was doing it was the Children's Hospital in Boston. So that was what prompted the story of my mom's immigration to the U.S. And then shortly after, you know, my father followed, and a few years later, um, I don't remember it, but I know I was born. And so I was raised in a household with my mother. My brothers, um, my mother uh, was a domestic worker. And so she spent about 15 years of her life cleaning people's homes wow. or caring for other people. And as a kid, you don't really realize how much your parents do for you until you are an adult and you look back at how much they did for you. So my mom would clean several houses a day. You know, she would be on her hands and knees scrubbing the floors she would be dealing with harsh chemicals she was severely underpaid disrespected and cleaning the homes of people who now have you know amazing careers and were able to focus on their work while she was cleaning their homes and caring for their parents and so i admire a lot of what my mom did and it's prompted a lot of the work that i've done both within the activist space and professional space and so you know after years of being a domestic worker she eventually realized that she didn't have to be silent about the things that she was dealing with. And so she actually became an activist herself around the rights of domestic workers, the rights of immigrant women, and really talked about the ways in which all of these things are intersectional and you can't talk about one issue without talking about the other. So that's just a little bit of like where I come from.
1: That's an amazing intro. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing... uh description of where you're up. So it sounds like you were right over there by Harvard and all the universities, a lot of opportunity. And then uh, kind of tell us a bit more about like the school you went to. And did you feel like that opportunity was available to you as well, being like a child of an immigrant household? Do you feel like that opportunity was equally distributed in that even though you were very uh, close to that space, did you feel like you had that?
2: I wish I did, but I didn't. My school was literally like you just had to walk in a straight line for like 10 or 15 minutes and you were at Harvard. And I don't think one person from Harvard ever came to my school to talk to us or MIT, which, again, was like a straight line in the opposite direction. So we didn't really have access to the people or the resources. The only school that worked with my elementary school was Tufts University, which also is right in Somerville. And, you know, when I was in, uh, like maybe sixth or seventh grade, there was a group of college students from Tufts who came to mentor young women and talk about the exciting journey into college and what it was like to apply and all the fields that you could study. But a majority of the girls who came to talk to us were white women and everyone in my class was mostly of color. And so there was a clear disconnect between the people who were talking to us and us. You know, they were talking about the process of asking your parents to co-sign loans. And I'm thinking, you know, some of us have undocumented parents. They can't co-sign loans, you know, or they're talking about just parents in general. And some of us are being raised by our grandparents. So there were a lot of discussions that didn't really apply to us. And so we physically attended and then we left and just felt like this wasn't helpful at all.
0: Yeah. And so so how did those Those school experiences and the people coming by to visit you affect where you wanted to go next into this activist state and, you know, being raised in that type of environment.
2: So it was challenging because I never really saw anyone who looked like me either in any of the schools, right? And I'm sure they were there or in a role that I thought was really incredible. I had really low expectations for myself for a very long time. You know, I knew I wanted to do something with my life, but I wasn't really sure what. It definitely never occurred to me that I would be in tech. It was never a thought at all that I would be in tech. Actually, when I was in, when I got to high school and I was thinking about careers, I started thinking about psychiatry. And that was actually my initial goal, because at least I felt, you know, which is a similar issue where you don't see a lot of psychiatrists who are of color, and you especially don't find a lot of Latina psychiatrists. And so similarly, I felt like I wanted to go into that field because I wanted to be able to be that resource for someone else. Then things changed along the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what changed? And, you know, I know you were interested in psychiatry. Why were you interested in psychiatry? And just kind of like what led you to go into the career path that you eventually followed?
2: Yeah, so I was interested in psychiatry. Because I really wanted to be in the healthcare industry and help people at a direct level. So initially, I actually started doing all of my prerequisites um, when I got out of high school for nursing school. And I think into my second year, I was learning how to suture and accidentally cut my hand open, which was not okay. And saw a lot of blood, didn't like it, fainted, realized I could not cope with the sight of blood. And realized, okay, well, you can't be a nurse, so you can go into psychiatry and still kind of have to go through the, that stuff, but not necessarily deal with it on a daily basis. But my high school journey was really challenging. So it made my hopes and dreams for you know, what I wanted to accomplish in my future, it lowered them. And the thing that I haven't mentioned and you mentioned at the beginning was that you know during my junior year of high school, I uh, discovered I was pregnant. And prior to uh, you know finding out I was pregnant, I was an honor roll student. I was the class representative. I was on the volleyball team. I was the captain of the dance team. I was really active. My teachers would ask me to tutor other students. But the minute that I became pregnant, I suddenly became like a horrible person to them. And so a lot of my educators and even my guidance counselors started really treating me badly and saying really awful things to me. And intentionally, or maybe unintentionally, getting in the way of my education. And so one example is when I finished my junior year of high school and uh, was starting my senior year of high school, my guidance counselor actually removed me from all of my honors classes. Wow. Yeah. And when I went to ask her, you know, what happened, she said, you know, well, now that you're a teen mom, like, I don't know if you're going to be able to handle it. Like, let's just put you in the easy classes. So... When you have people telling you that you can't do it, for me at the time, I started to believe it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we talk a lot about perception challenges and people feeling like they don't belong in situations. And it's interesting to hear what people have done to overcome those frustrations, those obstacles. And clearly you're a fighter to get up to this point. Do you have, what did you do to, to get over those situations when you know people were talking down to you?
2: So it was challenging. For a period of time, I struggled. I struggled a lot. And I think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes you struggle and you don't know what to do. And so you're just kind of like coping and taking it day by day. So there were a lot of times when I was just taking it day by day. And then I learned that talking to other people who were going through similar situations and coping with you know, similar issues made it a little bit easier for me. Once I learned that you know, I wasn't alone in the struggles and that a lot of other people were going through the same thing that I was going through made it significantly easier for me to find like, the strength to just keep on going. And it helped knowing other people so that I could ask them, you know, well, how did you do it? And how did you get past it? And, you know, what advice would you give to me?
0: Yeah. And we talked a little bit before this. And so when you had that situation, when they tried to boot you out of the honors classes, you fought and you got back into those classes and you overcame, correct? Yes. Yeah. yes. And so, you know, what, what happened after that?
2: So I fought I that and they put me back into honors classes. But the the stereotyping didn't really stop, just kind of overcame one little piece. It happened again when I went back into her office and I said, you know, I, I'm noticing all my friends are applying for college. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing too, but no one has scheduled any appointments with me. And The difference, too, is like my parents didn't go to college. No one in my family has gone to college. I've never even seen an application. No one in my family had. And so we didn't even know what the process was like or when to start and what I should be doing. And it wasn't until I saw a lot of my friends getting their acceptance letters that I realized I should probably apply. So I went to the guidance counselor's office and asked, you know, can you help me apply for college? I know they're not going to be like my top picks, but I think there's still, you know, state schools that I can get into. And without even looking up at me or making eye contact, she said, you know, well, teen moms don't graduate from high school. Like, we don't even know if you're going to graduate from high school. Why should we start working on college applications? So again, I just walked away from that situation thinking, well, what if she's right? And I walked away and I considered dropping out of high school. I didn't. I did finish high school and continued on with my educational journey.
1: Wow! So you encountered so much adversity. So just to provide context, like this, like when we think about what hard classes we had to take in high school or things we dealt with, compared to your journey, it's <laughs> you can't even put in, put them in the same like sentence. So this led you to college, right? And then you, you decide to kind of major in nursing slash uh, psychiatry, and then. Did you see yourself going to tech at all or did did you stumble onto that later in your career?
2: So I enrolled myself into community college where I started studying nursing, Mm -hmm. cut my hand open, decided nursing wasn't for me. I actually switched over to business and then something happened that made it incredibly difficult for me to stay in college. One was I wanted such a fresh start in my life that I didn't tell anybody in college that I was a mom. I wanted to just be treated like every other student. So I didn't tell my professors. I didn't tell my classmates. And nobody knew. That posed a few problems for me because when my kid was sick, I couldn't actually tell them my kid is sick or if she had appointments, which she had frequently because she was also born with congenital health condition when she was born. And Quickly, I found myself spiraling into more obstacles. I actually found out that I was depressed during that time. Childcare is inaccessible and it's expensive. And I was, you know, 18, 19 at the time and trying to balance a lot and working. So I had to make a decision at that time and I had to decide, do I want to continue on this educational journey as it is right now? Because I feel like that's what I have to do. Or do I look at the big picture, the whole picture, and I prioritize what's most important to me right now? And my situation at the time was focusing on self-care and focusing on my daughter and being a good mom. So I actually had to leave school and took a break for a long period of time to focus on being a mom and making sure that my mental health was good and establishing a career for myself, which definitely helped. Yeah. yeah.
0: And we we talk a lot about self-care and friendships and things like that. And, and from what I understand, you had people that did step in and help babysit at yeah. the time. What were some of the routines that you went through to keep sane?
2: Yeah. So I actually, this was before I was like attached to my phone 24 seven, like I am now. So it was a little bit easier, I think then, but my daughter actually was like the best self-care assistant. Because kids really like do not care if you have something to do. Like if they want to play, they want to play. If they want to like have a tickle fight, they want to have a tickle fight. And so she was actually really helpful in helping me get better. And she loved being outside and she loved flying kites. And so we had to go outside and fly kites and we chased each other and, you know, we played soccer And so I think just being out with her and laughing and just appreciating the bond that we had was really helpful. And then, of course, I sought professional help as well. I got a psychiatrist. I went to therapy. I was on antidepressants for a while to help. And all of it working together just was really, really helpful for me.
0: And all of that reflection time and and spending some time with your daughter is that when you decided to get into becoming a reproductive social activist? Um, And that sounds like that was also your introduction into tech or was that before?
2: Yeah. So it was actually right around that time. When you're a teen mom, you feel isolated. You feel like you're the only one who's going through these issues. And our society doesn't do a great job of painting us as the valuable and industrious members of society that we are. Like we're raising another generation, but we're treated And framed like we are social pariahs. So, you know, being a teen mom, you face a lot of isolation and stigmatization for the role that you play. And you aren't treated as the valuable and industrious member of society that you are. You're raising another person, but you're treated like a social pariah. And we're framed in shows like Teen Mom and 16 and Pregnant and movies like we're just drama queens that are irresponsible and dramatic. And of course, That's all for ratings and entertainment, right? And so there was a part of me that realized that the stereotypes in which teen moms are forced to face have a lot to do with our mental health, right? And how we perceive ourselves in the world and how we perceive ourselves as moms. And we feel like no matter what we do, it's not enough. And so during this period where I was trying to recover from depression, I actually started blogging about my life. Because at the time, you know, when you would go online to look for stories of teen moms, they were usually like horrible sob stories of failure and reasons why you shouldn't get pregnant. But you never found stories of people who overcame adversity or obstacles and who could give you, you know, real resources or tips on how to keep going. So I started blogging about my story. And that is how... I actually started connecting with a lot of people online who were teen moms or who just supported teen moms or, you know, people who were in similar situations and didn't face the same stigma that I did, but completely understand why they did, they didn't, and I did. Um, And a lot of that has to do with race and class. And so that experience of blogging and being online made me realize that there are so many people out there that are dealing with this. And we are in different parts of the country. We have different backgrounds. You know, we come from different families, but the one thing that we all have in common is that we are facing like the stigma of teen parenthood. We just started talking, and it didn't happen until 2013, but we decided that we wanted to just do something about it. And so we started a hashtag, and the hashtag started on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram, and it was created by seven young moms from across the country who wanted to push back against the ways in which our society stigmatizes young moms and elevate the ways in which we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and also elevate, you know, the reality that every young person in America deserves access to comprehensive, accurate, you know, LGBT inclusive sexual education because you really it's really not fair to tell young people, you know, don't get pregnant, don't become a teen mom but not provide them with the information that they need to make that choice and then shame them for becoming pregnant. So that's how I transitioned into reproductive justice. And through that, I was able to connect with a lot of organizations across the country and was soon working in the movement.
0: Awesome,
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So at that point, I think you were saying how you, you were still living in the East Coast, right? So what made you move out to the West Coast and what did you feel like you had, I guess, more advantage on the West Coast than you didn't have on the East Coast? Or what was your decision process for moving out to San Francisco?
2: So I was working in healthcare in Boston at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And then I was working at an organization, a youth sexuality organization called the Mass Alliance in Boston as well. And at the Mass Alliance, I was working under a $5 million CDC grant to decrease the teen pregnancy rate by 10%. In five years in two cities in Massachusetts.
0: Did you get those grants or those opportunities through the hashtag?
2: No, not through the hashtag, but the hashtag was in collaboration with it. Very cool. And so we got this $5 million grant at the Mass Alliance to decrease the teen pregnancy rate in five years by 10%. And replicating kind of what I did with No Teen Shame, we created another campaign with young people in those two cities to elevate the resources that were available, and to also talk about the ways in which drama is perpetuated between young people and how oftentimes that comes from systemic racism and gave them an opportunity to talk about the ways in which their society and their environment can sometimes shape the choices that are, you know, quote unquote, labeled poor choices. So, you know, long story short, we had a goal for five years and through amazing work with people on the ground and with this social messaging campaign that won several awards we actually reached our goal on year 3
0: wow wow and how did you connect with those initial seven women
2: so those seven women we connected through twitter so we found each other through twitter literally just venting about like teen motherhood and you know how awesome it is to be home on a friday night with your kid who's puking on you there's some perks to that don't worry but yeah so i was working on this grant. And that actually, because we accomplished such an amazing milestone in three years, the CDC was really excited about the work that um, we were doing. And so there were conferences all around the country, and they were sending me around to talk to different people about the work that we did and how they can replicate it and the importance of using positive youth development in the work. And so that led me to a conference here in San Francisco, where I was presenting, and I was here April of 2015, talking about both no teen shame and this work that we did through the CDC grant. So that's what physically brought me to San Francisco mm-hmm. last year, and physically being here allowed me to, you know, through mutual connections, meet someone who is on the executive team of where I work now. And that was where it all began. Shout out to Ren and Melanie. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so I got to talk to them and hear about the company and hear about tech in general and what it's like to be on the West Coast. Like it just seemed like a whole different world to me. And so I thought that was really interesting.
1: So it sounds like in the past you had a lot of obstacles and you started vetting on Twitter using blogging as a way to connect with people on the internet. And at some point, you guys were actually able to use those technologies like the hashtag to reach out and reach way more people than we probably could have 10 years ago. So what is your outlook for the future? And uh, how do you think uh, we could be using this tech to start movements and improve uh, like people's lives around the world?
2: Yes, social media has allowed us to connect with so many people who normally would like fall through the cracks. And so what was really important for me with No Teen Shame was not only were we able to, you know, massively amplify how many people we were reaching, but it was also the quality of people that we were reaching. A majority of people who use Twitter, for example, are young people of color. And, you know, we were trying to target young moms specifically and young dads. And if you think about it, you know, before something like a hashtag or Twitter or Facebook or blogging, The only way they could access resources that were local or even national is if they either did the research or they went physically to a space like a community center. But when you're living a hectic life and you're balancing a lot of things, you don't have time to do that. But you might have time to sit on Twitter and read through a few things and access information that's just kind of like stumbling through your timeline. And so that for us was, you know, not just about amplifying quantity rise, but also quality rise. We were reaching the people who, you know, might not have access to the support and resources that they need, but definitely have a Twitter account.
0: Got it. Have you ever met those people that you met on Twitter in person? So,
2: yeah, I think two years ago, actually, we discovered that there was a national organization that wanted to give us an award for our work. And we were so excited. And I think the best part of it was that we all seven were coming together for the first time. So we actually met at a conference in Austin, Texas, two years ago, October of, I believe, 2014. It was the first time that the seven of us, after like all this time of organizing and planning and conference calls, actually got to hug each other. That's so it awesome. Was the most amazing feeling ever.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about one of the campaigns that you did or a few of them that can just talk about like how big this was?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the first campaign that we did, which is the one that I love to talk about, was in May of 2013. And it was a counter messaging campaign in response to No Teen Preg. And so No Teen Preg is an annual campaign that happens in May around teen pregnancy prevention. And so we were countering that with messages of support to young people and also accurate information around gender and sexuality and just resources about their bodies and health. And so we, you know, created graphics and we created change.org petition and we were on Tumblr and Instagram and Twitter and we were incentivizing people to generate their own content and get the community to really engage with it. And we got a ton of organizations from across the country to support us and elevate us, you know, like Forward Together in Oakland and Voto Latino. Um, and so there were organizations all around the country who are elevating this. And, you know, I'm a metrics person. I love to look at data. And so I looked at No Teen Preg, which is this hashtag campaign that nonprofit organization runs on a six-figure budget, and I compared their data to our data, which was You know, seven young moms from across the country who had a zero dollar budget and we had double the reach and engagement that they did. Wow. Wow. And that was out of passion.
1: That's very cool. Very cool. And just to add to it, I think a lot of startups probably try to reach as many people as you've reached and they dump hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you guys just came together, had a mission and got it done, which is amazing. Yes. And uh, I guess it sounds like you've um, encountered a lot of adversity and through your activism, you were able to reach a lot of people and also meet some individuals that helped you break into tech. I guess, what advice would you have for other young moms or like, I don't know, just people who want to break into tech and they may have had some hardships and how do you turn those disadvantages or may perceived disadvantages into advantages?
2: So this, I love this question. And also because it came up during like my one-on-one when I was meeting the CEO of my company or not my company, the company that I work at. But he asked, you know, you talk a lot about being a teen mom and teen parenthood, and it's really amazing, you know, and genuinely was curious to know, like, where do I see the connection between teen parenthood and working in tech? And I just kind of smiled and said, you know, if you're looking for someone who is creative, who is willing to, you know, push back against people who are not going to believe in you, with little resources, but a lot of motivation, then ask a teen mom because that's literally what we're doing. And our goal in life is to be the best versions of ourselves for our children. And that's the kind of person that you want working with you. Yeah, no, that,
0: that's beautiful. And, um, you know, related to that motivation, I know I'm kind of going backwards a little bit, but when you talked about when you first physically came to San Francisco, what led you to Eventually, make the decision that you didn't want to stay in Boston and actually physically move to the West Coast.
2: Yeah. So before I even considered, you know, working in tech, I had a, the assumption that everyone in tech was like the same person. Like it was a bunch of people who were all like white male robots who just you know typed on computers and didn't care about anything that was happening in the world. But that's because I genuinely was disconnected, despite coming from a place where a lot of people in tech are studying. Um, I felt really disconnected with who the people were. So when I actually was meeting people at the company that we work at now, I was really amazed at like how amazing they are. And they have, you know, complex stories and they come from different backgrounds. And it's, you know, like a really diverse place. And so I remember leaving San Francisco during that trip in April of last year and having met some people on the team and getting to see what a startup actually looks like and thinking wow for like my whole life I thought that is not what tech looks like I did not think that that was possible or that existed and so when I was in Boston kind of fast forward through the process but I had several conversations with the team and I did my sim interview through Google Hangout What's a sim? It's a simulation interview where you're asked to basically for me at least I was asked to pretend you work in the company And, you know, you're proposing your 30, 60, 90 day strategic and tactical plan for, you know, what you plan to accomplish. And so after I did the sim and was offered a job, I was struggling with determining whether or not I was going to say yes to it. You know, I also know that there's less than three, like three, less than three percent of the tech sector are Latino women. And I kept thinking, do I want to go into that field? Is there a reason That they're not going in there, and I just don't know about it yet. And I actually talked to my mom about it because I was really freaked out. And my mom was the one who said, So you're telling me that there's a tech company in San Francisco who has just offered you a job and really wants you to work there, and they're amazing and they're working on an amazing mission. And what is your hesitation? And, you know, I was like, Well, I can't leave my support system. Like I can't leave my community. I'm really afraid. Genuinely, I was afraid. And she reminded me that at my age, she was moving from Brazil to the United States where she didn't have a place to live yet. She didn't have a job. She didn't speak the language. And she had a kid with her. So my mom was the one who convinced me to make the move.
0: That's awesome. Awesome. So she had no fear. Um, and then, you know, you took the courage to, to make it happen. And so What are you up to now? What are your plans for the future? And kind of like what's next for you?
2: So strangely enough, um, you know, a lot of times people say tech makes people less connected. Being out here has made me think a lot more about how to care for myself. And because I get to accomplish so many things so quickly through tech, the time that I'm not at work, I'm really thinking more about myself as a person. And I'm spending a lot of time with my daughter. And together we're thinking about you know how we can be better versions of ourselves and how we can continue to think about the ways in which we can make positive impact in the world and so internally part of my my plan for the future really is to be a little bit more spiritual and really think about my health and my you know what i want to look like when i'm 80 or feel like i should say when i'm 80 What kind of legacy I want to leave behind, not just for my daughter, but for her to share with her granddaughters about the women in her family and thinking a lot more about how I can get better connected with my own intuition. My mom was the one who reminded me, you know, work is important, but it's not your life. When you clock out, clock out. And in terms of everything else in your life, you have the answers. You just have to spend more time with yourself. And so I'm looking forward to spending more time with myself, maybe doing some more writing, learning how to garden. I don't know. I I, I try not to be too concrete because I know the future tends to be better when it's unexpected and creative.
0: Yeah. And how, how is Nellie like, or your daughter, like the how transition? How old is
2: she? She's 10.
0: Nice. How has she liked the transition?
2: So she is really benefiting from the transition, I think way more than me actually. And so My daughter, I think, is the most amazing person in the world and not just because I gave birth to her. But I do think she's amazing. And she actually wants to be a scientist. And, you know, I think having this experience out here has been super helpful in that way because I actually bring her into work whenever I can because I want her to see what it's like. I want her to be comfortable in the space. I want her to bother the engineers as much as she wants, um, as long as it's not too distracting. But I want her to experience this now so that she doesn't have to look back and say, I never saw what that was like or I felt disconnected. And actually, I can proudly say that my daughter, who's 10, is actually in Boston studying at MIT and learning how to code and design games because that's what she likes to do. That's so awesome. And
0: she is amazing. I've seen seen her come out of the office. She's giving everybody hugs and prizes and things like that. She's she's definitely a bundle joy.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing story. You're definitely a role model to your daughter, but also to so many women across the United States and, and to us as well. And to us too because when we look at what we've achieved and what you've achieved, it doesn't even come close. <laughs> <laughs> so, the next uh, part of our podcast, it's the lightning round. So, this is where we're going to ask you a few questions and then try to give us a uh, brief answers, but provide some strategies, tactics, some resources that you've used to get to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about kind of limited working or operating under limited resources. So imagine if you were dropped in a new city, all over again, and you only had $100. What would you do and how would you spend that $100 to get back on your feet and get to where you are now?
2: Okay, I would use Twitter or Facebook to find friends that I could stay with, and I would get a monthly pass, a transportation pass, Mm -hmm. and I would find ways to use my time as a volunteer at different organizations and companies that I felt passionately connected to so that I could start networking with people who could vouch for me in an authentic way.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good answer. And so throughout this process and the obstacles that you went through, was there any song, movie, or something like that that you listened to or watched that helped you get through that situation?
2: So I feel like I'm really weird when it comes to music. So I like listening. We we like weird music. Okay. (laughs) So I like listening to flamenco music. Okay. Um, And that is the most soothing thing that I can listen to. Like it can instantly change my mood no matter what. And so During difficult times, I would like put on some Paco Peña. Okay,
1: perfect. Awesome. And um, to our listeners who are thinking about maybe leaving their support system on the East Coast to move out to the West Coast and join the tech industry, what is the one piece of advice that you have for them that you've uh, realized since moving out here?
2: Trust yourself and really believe in yourself because you are able to accomplish so much more than you think you can, but you have to push yourself to find out that you can do it.
1: Awesome. Solid. And then what is uh, one thing that you fundamentally believed in that you changed your mind on after going through this process?
2: That tech was bad.
0: It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, and the last question, can you share any online resources that you found the most useful outside of your blog, which you should give a shout out to, by the way?
2: Uh, yeah. So my site is nvianna, V-I-A-N-N-A dot com. But truthfully... I feel like if you just use Twitter as like a search and you go into the search bar and you type in some keywords or things that you're looking for, you tend to find people who are already sharing those resources. So my resource is using Twitter as a resource.
0: I like it. I like it. Love it. And so how can people get in touch with you outside of Twitter? Oh, well, first, what's your Twitter? Twitter
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My Twitter handle is Natasha Viana. N-A-T-A-S-H-A-V-I-A-N-N-A. There's also uh, a contact form on my website as well.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Oh, she's she's awesome on Twitter. So definitely follow her. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time
1: to be with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.